Chesson's defeat. And when I say that, I mean Jake wouldn't want to quit. He wanted to go. He would. Never went down, right? He never got me down, right? You hear me? Never got me down. Yeah. See, look. And in the 13th round, the hard luck round, the championship of the world has changed hands. And there you see it. A champion gone down to defeat. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Our film this week is Raging Bull, which I'll be discussing with Stephen Benedict, who is a film critic and film director. Raging Bull is just, I think, the greatest biopic that's ever been made, and uh, this is just such an intense film to, to re-watch. It's 40 years old now, 1980. It lost in the best picture to Ordinary People, Robert Redford's film, which is not my favorite cup of tea. But this, the performances, uh, not so much even the stylized violence in the ring, but just the endless, almost casual, matter-of-fact violence outside the ring. Uh, this film is just so corrosive. And it got a lot of criticism at the time that it came out for Scorsese's neutral depiction of such a brutal character in Jake LaMotta, but uh, I think the consensus since then has recognized it for its quality as, a, as the masterpiece that it is. So I hope you enjoy this week's discussion about Raging Bull. All right, so we begin with Raging Bull, the 1980 loser to lost, <laughs> lost to ordinary people for Best Picture. I wonder, as a film critic, if that is one of the most glaring choices in Oscar's illustrious history. Um, I think it's, it's an unfortunate thing because Ordinary People Standing on Its Own is a very fine film. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very, very different modulation. The emotions are there. It's all about suppression. And, um, you know, not having lived in America, but having engaged with America by visiting, I've got relations living there. I've got two brothers living there. Uh, I've gone over quite frequently. But obviously my engagement with America is primarily through TV and film. Um, it, it seems to me it just ordinary people captures a certain type of America that is, we would I don't know whether you call it not necessarily cookie cutter, but it's it, it seems very, very East Coast, Connecticut, uh, white suburban. And I, in my impression, it, it sort of captures something very well because I don't get a, a, a sense of it. Phony. You know, uh, it's like when I when I saw Close Encounters at a very, very young age. Obviously, I'd never been to the United States before, but it looked like, yeah, that's what America is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like and I've, I've read subsequently that um, a lot of critics say that Spielberg somehow captured suburbia really, really, really well. And um, there's a there's a sense that in ordinary people that have done that. And I think, unfortunately, you know, history has been has been quite unkind to the film. Uh, because it did, because it beat out Raging Bull, you know. I mean, at the same token, it also beat out The Elephant Man. Right. You know? And if The Elephant Man had won Best Picture, would people be still? Would people be saying, "Oh, The Elephant Man is just a sentimental mm. nonsense"? But I think that's an interesting, um, maybe, angle to take, is because um, Raging Bull 
the, one of the great things about Scorsese's films is they're never sentimental. He doesn't deal in sentimentality. He's a very, uh, I wouldn't say cold, but, you know, uh, or dispassionate, because his films are full of passion. But um, you know, he, he doesn't go maudlin on us at all. And because of that, I don't think he does nostalgia. Mm. Not into nostalgia at all. And it's interesting then that he chose to make Raging Bull in black and white, you know, right. which he would send, give you a sense of, a feeling of nostalgia. Um, but look, I, I think just coming back to Ordinary People, it's a very fine film. Um, but Raging Bull is the one that's really lasted. You know, I think. So what, what does Raging Bull represent to you, both for Scorsese and for film? I mean, it should be in the conversation, I think, for the greatest biopic ever, or, or am I mistaken? I'll agree with you there. Yeah, greatest biopic. Uh, but then, it, and this is not to take away from us, how many great biopics can we think of? You know, because they're usually hagiographies like Gandhi, and it's a well-intended, noble movie. But, you know, you'll hear it from Scorsese when he says a noble effort, that's the most damning criticism he can level at you. If you're a collaborator and you turn in the script because it's a noble effort, you know you're off the books. You're finished. <laughs> you know he's looking for something more than that. Um, uh, I think um, with Scorsese, I think I used to think it's his greatest film. Uh, I'm beginning to change a little bit. May, I'm beginning to think maybe Goodfellas is. Mm. I think what the great thing about what uh, Raging Bull is, what Scorsese managed to do, is he's able to put himself on the screen. He was able to find himself within the the character of Jake LaMotta, and he was able to draw on so many things of his own experiences and his own childhood growing up, I think it was in Elizabeth Street in New York, in Manhattan, Elizabeth Street, um, that he put so many of his own experiences into the film to make sure, to, to ensure that it wasn't a piece of nostalgia, that it wasn't just a biopic of uh, Jake LaMotta, um, but it was an, uh, it was an examination of a, of a certain uh, aspect of not only American life, but masculinity. And I think as the years go by, we're able to peel off different things and realize really what, not only what the film is really about, but yet another thing that it's about. Uh, um, I remember he was in, uh, sorry, Scorsese was in conversation. He said something that really, really struck the core for me. He says, nothing is so simple that there's only one reason for anything. It's really complex. And what I love about the film, and especially um, Scorsese's films and sets in the past, when he never foregrounds the political situation, you know, and uh, the in, in fact, um, the background isn't really political either. The background is sociological, it's, it's personal, uh, it's textural, right? And for me, it's going to sound strange. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when, when Jake meets Vicky very, for the very first time. She's at the swimming pool in the community pool and she's behind the, the grill and she comes forward and they barely say anything to each other. He says, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice car. You like that car? Nice. And in the previous shot, this is the fantastic thing about the, the scene. You see, you see Jake's spanking new car. But behind it, you see cars from the 1920s and 1930s. And I have seen the movie many, many times, but I only noticed that recently. And I think that's a really important point to make, because the vast majority of time when a movie is set in the past, say, if you're looking at a movie like, say, 1955, everything is brand new. Every car that was 
roll off the production line in 1955, perfectly polished, and that's all you see in the street. And the radio and the TV in the home and the furniture is all 1955, as though 1923 never existed. And, you know, what he's doing there is he's giving fantastic texture without necessarily verbally drawing attention to it. You know, the dialogue never explains to us this is 1941. The war is just about to start. We're going to, you know, Pearl Harbor is yet to happen. Uh, you don't have characters talking about Roosevelt in the White House. You know, you don't talk about you, the war is barely, if ever, referred to. Sort of. So there is there is this the background is a very, very strange background in Scorsese's pictures. And I think that's one of the reasons why it works so much is because, you know, he focuses so much on the the characters that the characters then become their own background. Mm. Does that make sense? I know it's a very yeah. long way for me to say one thing, you know. Um, well, and I wonder also, Stephen, I was rewatching Truffaut Hitchcock, which I really enjoyed as a film. And there is an observation about Hitchcock that he maintains a self-contained psychology throughout almost all of his films. We're, we're not investigating other people's psychology, or if we are, it's uh, ancillary to the primary. We're in Hitchcock's brain, Hitchcock's desires, his guilt. Is there an aspect of that with Scorsese, now that I think about it, that these themes of religion, spirituality, materialism, masculinity, uh, this film was made, I mean, a bit of background on it you were talking about, that this is Scorsese's physical world that we're investigating, where he grew up, the time in which he grew up. But also psychologically, this is a guy who's in the hospital, he's recovering from uh, serious coke addiction, he's got a major physical ailment. This is a little asthmatic kid who knows nothing about sports, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> who's pulled into it by De Niro's persistence that as much to sort of be involved in this project, it's kind of to resuscitate the creative juices and drive of Scorsese, who is kind of on the edge of a, a precipice, it sounded like. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. I mean, Scorsese, like so many of the filmmakers that emerged uh, in the new Hollywood in the 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, um, they were incredibly driven. It's hard to underestimate, you know, the, uh, what the likes of Coppola, Lucas, Scorsese, Spielberg, what these guys did. And because Hollywood was falling apart and they forged through there. Yes, there was an opening, but what they built in its place uh, is quite remarkable. And I think it's interesting you said the, the word resuscitation there. And um, it's really a resurrection in Scorsese's mm -hmm. because he had exploded off the scene and Mean Streets came out in 73. Uh, Paramount Pictures wanted a sequel to The Godfather. Coppola said he wouldn't do it, but he says, he says my friend Martin Scorsese is the guy to do it. Um, uh, then he makes Alice Doesn't Live Her Anymore, which is a, you know, a left turn, if ever there was one. He's not making a gangster picture. People think he's, okay, he's Italian-American. He's going to make gangster pictures. And he makes this melodrama, and it wins Ellen Burstyn the Best Actress Award. And so suddenly, now you ask yourself, what is Scorsese's metier? What is his preferred arena? And then he goes off and does Taxi Driver. And you're looking at these three films back to back to back. And you say, what is the, what is the lineage between these three films? What's the, what's the sinew? And Scorsese is the sinew. And critics are trying to find out what this guy does. What's the, what's the connectivity? And when Taxi Driver comes out, again, I'm giving you an example of the no background of it. Um, Travis's character is a veteran of the Vietnam War, but he never talks about it. Mm. 
And another movie would have a big confessional scene where he breaks down to cry to Sybil Shepherd to say, you've got to understand me. Nothing like that. So he avoids that. And then he does, uh, he does New York, New York, which is a musical. And that fails, that, that flops the box office. Uh, he has these enormous addictions. He's an incredibly compulsive personality. And also we've got to understand Scorsese, it, it's got to be clear from his films, that this is a man of phenomenal rage. Mm. He has intense anger to the point of frightening anger. Um, you know, you can see, first you see it in his films. Uh, it's occasionally alluded to when you listen to the, to the director's commentaries on, his, on, his, on the DVDs, specifically by, from Thomas Schoonmaker. There's a scene in Raging Bull where De Niro and his uh, Jake LaMotta is arguing with his first wife and suddenly he overturns the table in the kitchen and things are thrown against the wall. Can't wait to be done. Mark, can't wait. Good. Okay? Happy? Happy? That's all I want. That's all I want. Here. No more. Here. You bought me a state? Huh? You bought me a state? And Thomas Schoonmaker says, well, that was was not necessarily a common occurrence, but that's what Walker says he witnessed as a child growing up in the house. There was huge turmoil domestically. And then there's intense violence out in the streets and in the stairwells of where he's living in Elizabeth Street. So he's exposed to this sort of intense violence. And so when he, uh, he as he said, when uh, his life sort of begins to disassemble, uh, his addiction over his cocaine addiction overcomes him. He's in the hospital and De Niro comes to him. But this was a project that he'd already mentioned to him before, as he said. And Scorsese was not uh, an athletic child, he was asthmatic. You know, always uh, confined to his bedroom, not always, but most of the time confined to his bedroom, looking out through the window, down on the children playing in the street. And uh, really was on, on, I wouldn't say his deathbed, but he was on the bed in the hospital. And that's when he realized, he identified suddenly with what Jake LaMotta had been doing. He's fighting himself. And so, you know, the way that Jake LaMotta was able to make sense of his life was when he's only, only when he was fighting in the gym, sorry, when he's fighting in the ring. Scorsese's life really only made sense when he was actually filming, when he was, you know, making movies. And I think Scorsese had resigned himself to the to if this movie didn't happen or if this movie failed, he was going to go off and make documentaries about the lives of the saints. <laughs> and you know, it's been well documented that Spielberg. Uh, that I keep on calling him Spielberg. Sorry, it's been well documented that Scorsese studied in the seminary for a short while, um, and. You know, the, the thing of his Catholicism coming through when the movie was released in, the, in 1980, that's what the, um, the, the, the critics were latching onto. They thought, you know, this was, this was Scorsese's metier, but really it's not. I think it is wider than that. And that's the great thing about Scorsese's career. He's been able to find new grounds to explore similar themes, but by finding new grounds, it looks like a different theme. And I think it's really the conflict between the physical and the spiritual you know, that you see, and um, this purgation when uh, he abuses his wife, his second wife, Vicky, played by Kathy Moriarty, um, and then he goes into the ring and he accepts a phenomenal savage beating. And, and this is after he's also confronted, he's accused his brother, Joey, played by Joe Pesci, of um, having sex with his wife. And he beats his brother, and he goes in to take a beating into the ring, because that's all that's the only parameter with which he can make sense of this. He can't, he doesn't have the, the emotional um, complexity or the maturity or even the verbal skills 
to apologize and to explore why he does this. You know, and then if you look at movies like Goodfellas and then Casino, I think what Scorsese has been doing there is he's been expanding this notion of um, the conflict between the physical and spiritual. Uh, to the point that you look at the spiritual aspect of Goodfellas and it's simply not there. It's all complete indulgence, you know. Yeah. And and then Casino, um, I think what happens with Casino, Bryn, is that it's a very, very personal film for Scorsese because it's a reflection of what happened to him in the 1970s as a filmmaker. He was given heaven on earth. It's a line that um, um, H. Rothstein has in Casino where he goes, we were given heaven on earth. We were given this, this casino to play with, and we screwed it up. That's what happened with the directors in the 1970s. Coppola, uh, Lucas, Scorsese, Spielberg. They made these phenomenally successful films, and eventually they all screwed up. Uh -huh. Their careers had to be reevaluated. Spielberg survived because he had this phenomenal ability to, to channel his talents into really, really commercial enterprises. But Spielberg self found himself on the outside in the 1980s. Raging Bull was not a big uh, commercial hit. It, it wasn't a huge critical hit either. And the, the critics were wondering, why would you waste time, spend so much time focusing on such a repugnant personality? And so, you know, this is not a worthy uh, um, subject of investigation, which is a very narrow view of critics. You know, are films supposed to be just celebratory all the time? And in our previous discussion, we were talking about Million Dollar Baby, and we alluded to the, the lighting scheme, and you beautifully said that it's Caravaggio in the lighting. And I think that's in the Renaissance sense, that is what, in the late Renaissance sense, that is who Scorsese is. He makes movies about the sinners. And other filmmakers, you know, Spielberg is making movies about sort of uh, the more virtuous aspect of our nature. And Scorsese is down with the, the sinners. Uh, he's making, you know, one of uh, Caravaggio's most celebrated paintings is the Madonna with the dirty feet. And just think about it. That's what Scorsese is doing, you know, and he, even no matter what strata of the mafia that he's investigating, whether it be the, the lowest rung in Mean Streets, the middle class guys who move out to the suburbs in, in Goodfellas, and then the gods who go all the way out to, Cal out to Nevada in Casino, and um, they uh, they all have these phenomenal flaws within their personalities, and it's the dirtiness of their 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 personalities um, and the dirtiness of their soul, if you will, that he's really really interested in examining. And I think that's one of the reasons why Raging Bull deserves to be more more celebrated than Ordinary People. Ordinary People is a fine movie, but I don't think it has the layers and the sociological layers. I mean, the one thing that I find fascinating about Scorsese is he's an anthropologist in a strange way. He just loves examining tribes. And the tribal behavior of, you know, the mafia is obviously very, very clearly one of them. But if you look at the Wolf of Wall Street, it's another tribe, you know, uh, these guys in suits and they're just stealing money from people. And then if you look at uh, the Age of Innocence, that's a tribe in itself. You know, the the uh, the, the aristocratic New York, uh, I think would have, been, would have been the 400 Club. Sorry, I don't know whether the 400 Club has been already established by the 1870s, but that's the strata, and it's the it's the it's the tribal codes, the invisible um, uh, expressions and signals that you're able to you're supposed to be able to read to survive um, this really really feral um, milieu, you know. And if you don't know the code, you're going to be destroyed. And um, you know, Jake, how does he survive that? Uh, because he's got to overcome himself first. And I think that's uh, what Scorsese did in the film with Raging Bull, is that he 
he overcame his addiction to drugs. Uh, I don't think he's been doing them since. Um, but the great thing is he's, he's yet to overcome his addiction to cinema. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Frank Capper who said, or maybe it was Stanley Dunham who said, it's the one addiction I never want to be cured of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sick, don't ever, don't ever cure me. You know? How do you well, find I, I was just going to say it's interesting. I never made the connection with Caravaggio and Scorsese, but that's a really interesting parallel because Caravaggio was – well, on a number of levels, extraordinarily revolutionary in terms of even just the models he would choose. He went out of his way to find street people. Um, He did a biblical scene of a dead virgin, I believe, and he went to a morgue to get a prostitute who was dead. So he's casting, continually casting gods to look more like the people who would go to see them in church. Yes. Which it, it was always the opposite done, right? To make people yes. look like gods. Now let's make gods look like people. So the, the fruit bowl is rotting as we are rotting. Yes. Um, yes. You know, the dirt on the nails of Bacchus and the fruit is all molding and everything. Yes. Um, as well as controlling where we look. When Jesus enters a room and calls to one of his disciples, we focus the light on the pointing and Jesus is in the shadows. Right. You know, a lot of very interesting choices there to direct. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the thing is you're saying um, about painting the gods in us. And that's the difference between Scorsese and a lot of the directors who emerged, who especially in the 1980s, it was the, you know, with, with Reaganomics, Hollywood was aspirational. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this was an aspirational lifestyle. This is the, this is the, well, we won't say that I, there's very, very few movies in America that came out in the, in the 80s that were spiritual. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, they were very, very materialistic, but it was aspirate. You aspire to that lifestyle. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why Spielberg's movies survived is because there's always a very strong spiritual element in the movies, but Spielberg's movies are always aspirational. Scorsese. No, Spielberg's. Spiel, Spielberg's oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Spielberg's films are always spiritually aspirational. Virtuous, and Scorsese um, is, as I said, down amongst the sinners. And he, as he said, he is he's portraying us on screen, you know, uh, all our flaws. And this that's the really, really strange dichotomy in his films is that um, he 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 presents this really, really dangerous, mask toxic masculinity. And it's only in the last maybe five or six years that we're starting to use this phrase much more regularly that we're able to recognize the men that he's depicting. You know, we, we look at Goodfellas and think, oh, it's, he was accused of glamorizing um, uh, the mafia lifestyle. So we look at it carefully. It's not a it's condemnation, but it's not a traditional easy condemnation at all. He's not murdered. He's not caught by the police. He's, he lives in purgatory. And I think that's the thing with, with mm-hmm. Bull is that it's absolutely brutal, his presentation of it, to the point that it was repugnant. So we actually couldn't see ourselves in it. And maybe it's because of our vanity that we didn't see the potential for uh, verbally abusing our brother, our sister, our family, uh, the people closest to us. Uh, paranoia is a huge thing that runs through Raging Bull as well. The way Scorsese is able to put the camera in Jake's point of view, and then he he puts this, the camera into slow motion. And it's literally that Jake is not reading the world. He's only seeing it literally through his own lens. And maybe that was the reason why critics couldn't uh, warm to the film. You know, it's not a film that you have to warm to. It's a film that you just got to examine, you know. 
Um, but sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you were the one when I listened to you talk about Goodfellas and contextualizing that into the trilogy of Goodfellas, Casino, Wolf of Wall Street, that we're looking at different stratas of yeah. capitalism and materialism. And you made the point because this film, and I'd like to get into Pauline Kael quite famously, shit all over this film and shit all over almost every aspect that we now revere it yeah. for what, what Scorsese achieved. Um, but her, her initial concern was that Scorsese has treated the LaMotta characters with such neutrality, which seems to run through a lot of critical attacks of Scorsese is you can't present Henry Hill as if this is an attractive lifestyle that like when he's seducing the would be wife to get into the club, to bypass the line, to get the seat right in the front row that's not available, yeah. that he's not just seducing her, he's seducing us. Yeah. Just yeah. as all middle class people aspire to a, a weekend vacation in Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's no it's no coincidence that the movie that he made before Goodfellas had temptation in the title. And that's what he did. <laughs> it is a temptation. And the thing is, we have to resist it. You know, it's, it's very, very easy when we look at movies in classical Hollywood and cinema from the 30s through to the 50s, that the moral was very, very clear. And it was always delivered in the same way. The criminal was apprehended and um, brought to justice or killed. And Scorsese doesn't go for that easy buyout at the end because he saw it in the streets around him criminals prospered criminals got away with it criminals died peacefully peacefully in their beds and so he goes out in a completely different way and i i don't i remember reading pauline kale obviously i didn't read it when the movie came out but i remember as a late teenager early 20s reading her and immediately um refusing to to agree with what she said about the neutrality is the thing is that we've got to understand that Scorsese is coming at this this subject from a neorealist standpoint. Okay, just simply look at the, the style, the visual style that he has, um, most explicitly with Raging Bull. Um, uh, it is shot in a unartful way. Now, Michael Chapman was fully deserving of his uh, Oscar nomination for best cinematographer. I'm not saying that it was without art. It's brilliantly done. But if you look at the framing, it is not the traditional framing where we have uh, it's perfectly balanced, right? It's almost as if where is the space where we can put the camera in this room to capture the reality? And um, if you think about the, the, the um, if you think about other great directors, Kubrick, Kurosawa, Antonioni, Orson Welles, you can actually uh, find a typical Kubrick frame. A typical Kubrick composition, okay, um, it, there's perfect symmetry in it, for example. There's a single point perspective, right? Uh, a lot of the time, you know, we have cold, hard light coming at the camera. Uh, if you look at Orson Welles, he loved to play with background and foreground, and he would carve out the space with sculpting light. Antonioni is a lot of emptiness in the frame. The character will be slightly off not not the center of the frame, but even off by a third. You know the way we've got the, the beautiful composition, the two, three, five, and well, for Antonioni, he shot in 185 a lot of the time. But instead of placing, uh, dividing his frame into, into thirds, and he would the character, he would have a character one third away across the frame. He would actually have them one ever ever so slightly off the one third line. Does mm. that make sense? Right? Yeah. 
So that's a typical Antonian composition. Kurosawa, exactly the same way. He would have beautiful compositions where two or three people would move left, right at the same time. And he would have a perfect, uh, uh, sorry, there's a guy called Tony Joe who does a wonderful uh, uh, video essay on, on Kurosawa. And Tony Joe's video essays were called Every Frame of Painting. And he, always, he drew attention between the background and the foreground. There isn't a signature framing that Scorsese has for the simple reason that wherever the emotional heat is in the frame, in, this, in the event that it's going to capture, that's where he puts the camera to capture it. And it's always in response to the actors. And that, that is born out of the films of Rossellini in the, in the mid-1940s. Uh, Rome Open City, Paisan, Germany Year Zero, and Stromboli with Ingrid Bergman. And it's a very unadorned frame. So um, there's no signature framing style that Scorsese has. And because of that, the audience aren't given the subliminal visual cues as to how to read this film. Mm, and Colin Kale didn't get the new clues that Scorsese was putting in, by which I mean he was taking the clues out and not giving you a, a simple clue. For me, um, the movie that really, really had a huge impact on Scorsese when he made the, the movie, uh, there, there are many, many different sources, obviously, but one of them is a movie by Pier Paolo Pasolini called Acatone, which mm. he was the first film in 1961, which is the most unartfully framed picture you're ever likely to see from a from a, a director who'd come on to go on to be put in the, one of the most established one of the most important Italian directors um, and Scorsese doesn't really go into that beautiful choreography either you know okay you've got the long tracking shots that you have when Jake comes out of the, the changing room with his brother Joey uh, um, and then they walk along the, the tunnel and they go down the, up the steps and down through the crowd and onto the onto the, um, the ringside but that's really, they were just following them, right? That's not choreographed in the way there was well to choreograph a scene, make it a dance, which is strange because let's face it, the temptation would be to choreograph the fights. Scorsese wasn't choreographing the fights as we know. He was, as accurately as he could, trying to recreate the fights in the ring. And it is that neutrality that I think Pauline Kael was confused by. And we said her, a lot of the critics were at the beginning as well. Same thing when Goodfellas came out. You know, I remember reading uh, Ian Johnson, who was a critic in the UK at the time, saying, why would you waste your time spending, why would you devote so much talent to such a terrible subject? You know, and they said he doesn't condemn it. Well, in Goodfellas, there's a that great scene where, uh, where um, Henry in his voiceover says, you know, one day the kid in my neighborhood carried my mother's groceries all the way. You know why? It was out of respect. And when that line is delivered um, young Henry has, has just blown up the entire cab stand thrown, blown up all these cars set the light, and there's a huge explosion behind him and he's running away from the explosion and he's framed and Scorsese and Schoonmaker froze the frame at a specific point where you see him with his arms outstretched wow. and he's Christ on the cross but the thing is Scorsese doesn't linger on that and he doesn't tell you what the image means he moves on to the next one so you've got to be quick to pick up the clues. Now, it took me a long time to pick up that clue, but I think with Pauline Kael, uh, and this, sorry, this is just another thing, Bryn, that I find very frustrating, is critics are, um, are expected to be able to understand the movie on the first screening. Right, right. you think about it. You know, you've got a filmmaker or filmmakers will spend two years putting a movie together. 200 people will be involved. That's 200 brains and two years uh, manpower. 
and two million decisions every day and a critic assumes that they can get in the first screening, get out of here. They've got to be able to, they should watch the movie five or six times over a month and let it percolate, you know? Well, and, and I think like, also there's something interesting, like what you were talking about with Scorsese, I thought his focus was Henry Hill or was Ace De Niro's character in Casino or, or celebrating in a kind of Wall Street-ish way DiCaprio's character in The Wolf of Wall Street. But when I think about it of him holding a mirror up to us, yeah. that all of these characters are aspirational for their respective strata in capitalism. Yeah. Blue collar with Henry Hill, middle yeah. class aspirations with Casino, trying to become nouveau riche with yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. Um, it is... I mean, you get a clear blueprint of how Trump has successfully marketed himself as an everyman while being anything but in terms of what he inherited and, and all yeah. of that. But it's very Henry Hill. It's like it's very almost all three of them into one. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, I mean, you know, if we were to maybe catapult ourselves 200 years in the future, hopefully we could still be here. And um, we look back, we go, yeah, Scorsese was actually un unwittingly heralding the arrival of Donald Trump, you know, and, uh, you know, and the, th the thing is, for me, one of the most telling scenes in the world of Wall Street is at the very, very end when when um, Jordan comes out and he goes, sell me this pen. Right. He says he goes for a, a shot of the, the audience, his, his captive audience, and it's a mirror of us, because if we're to be honest, we want that yacht and we want that line of cocaine and right. we want, you know, and we have to be honest. And the only way we can be honest is by admitting to it and then resist the temptation. Because if we say, oh, I would never do that or never, never fall to that, we're not being tempted. There's, there's no strength in our, in, our, in our character then to resist it. It's, it's like, you know, you can only uh, define your courage through your fear. Right. You can only show how, how strong you are if you resist the temptation. And, and so one other, one other aspect of this film that, that interests me is I'd like to get into a few of, of Pauline Kael's points because I think they're interesting to address. Again, because there's this, her contemporaneous reactions, I think, were consistent with a lot of people's repulsion to this film, repulsion to what they thought Scorsese's aims were. But as I rewatched this film, now 40 years old, I was, I, I remember it was said, I think um, Frank Mankiewicz said of Hunter S. Thompson with fear and loathing on the campaign trail about the 1972 campaign, it's the least factual and the most truthful right. about what happened. And there's an element of that with this film about the pathos of the man of LaMotta and the ethos of boxing that there's something totally unrealistic about this, not that it's intending to be, but is more truthful about my 10 years being around fighters who hang around too long, dealing with the ability to cross a threshold to hurt or kill another man and also regularly accept through through consent through uh, through election to be potentially killed for the entertainment of a crowd both in the arena and behind cameras um and you touched upon in one of your reviews which I thought nailed this that the entire movie is a fight and it's a meditation on violence with the most violent scenes taking place outside the ring. And the only consensual violence that Scorsese depicts 
is the one that all of us as a society say, this is entertainment, this is fun for us to pay to watch. Well, that's, that's brilliantly done. You hit the nail on the head there, and I haven't noticed it before, but the opening scene in the film, in Raging Bull, is the older Jake in front of the mirror giving his, his uh, monologue, and he goes, that's entertainment. And the second he says that, he cuts straight into a fight. And that's what it is. It's, it's violence as entertainment. And, you know, you were wondering about Scorsese focusing so closely on Henry Hill or uh, Ace Rothstein or Jordan Belford and not worrying about the background. And I think is by focusing so much on them he, as a poet, he's able to find the germ, that one little seed that is emblematic of a wider aspect of the culture. And for Jake, I mean, you were talking about there, you know, consent. I think it was Bert Sugar, is, isn't he a boxing historian? He said it's, it's legalized assault. <laughs> right. And absolutely, the, the scenes outside of the, of the ring, um, there's a phenomenal fear in every scene that he's just going to go off on the slightest provocation. And it's almost impossible to expect people, a, a personality, to, to be able to, to be encouraged to step into the ring, to be violent in the ring. And once you step beyond the canvas, it's to drop all that. Because the, surely the adrenaline, the physicality within your DNA, just the muscle memory is there for you in the kitchen. If someone comes at you, <laughs> you lash out. It's like, you know, in a way, how about this? It's, the movie is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Mm -hmm. so, um, and the, the, the stress disorder that Jake would be experiencing, you could surely trace back to his childhood, his really, really problematic relationship that he had with his brother. And, and you know, one just one thing to add, uh, Bert Sugar was the first boxing writer that I ever met. Ah, okay. And he made a comment, I asked him a question about what I was reporting on, about why a boxer would allow themselves to be so sy systemically systematically taken advantage of, that, that they do this thing that most men would be terrified. It's a nightmare scenario to get into the ring half naked and potentially be knocked out or removed of your senses. Um, why would he allow these managers and promoters to take advantage of him? And Sugar said, you really don't know much about boxing or boxers because boxers avoid conflict everywhere except the ring. Oh, okay. Okay. And and while I agree that Lamada is looking for con physical conflict all over the place at all times, um, the central conflict of his life, the, the, where the real stakes are, he doesn't go near it. He's petrified of confronting himself. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, this comes back to the, the poetry of, of Scorsese, that he's able to nail um, I, you know, the funny thing is, I was saying a couple of minutes ago that you, you can't recognize or describe a signature Scorsese frame, okay? Mm -hmm. But he still, at the same time, he has the phenomenal ability to come up with an image that kernelizes it. Not exactly what the movie's about, but you can see the, the, um, so many elements of the, the film in that one frame. The opening scene, the credit sequence when Jake is in the ring, and you've got the three ropes across, which is the prison. And where does he, what's the final scene in the movie? In the prison cell. Brilliant, brilliant. You're and so right. He's, he's not fighting anyone else other than himself. And at the beginning of the movie, there's no one else in the ring. And his opponent is not there, but he is there. It's, it's himself, you know. And the great thing is the way Scorsese is able to not only put that in as a as sort of a psychological examination, but as we touched on the sociological as well, you know, um, we, we were talking about Henry Hill and 
and uh, alluding to Trump. But also another layer that he puts in, it's not effortlessly, he works so hard at this, is the allusion to other movies. Mm. And uh, I don't know how close uh, Jake Lamotta was to his brother Joey or how abusive that or dysfunctional that relationship was. But Scorsese was able to put it in the context of On the Waterfront. And even, you know, the the, the scene where in 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 Raging Bull, where Jake actually agreed to to to, to throw the fight, and then uh, he comes home and he's in the kitchen with with Joey, and um, he actually says the same thing. He says, "You don't understand," and that's straight out of Brando's mouth. You know, he says, "You know, they, they I think they asked me to fall to a bum," and that's almost a reclamation of what what um, what uh, Terry Malloy is giving to his brother Charlie. And it, it's that brilliant ability to, I don't know, as we said, how, how accurate it was. And we're saying that the film tells maybe a lot of lies, but is a poetic truth. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's uh, one thing that he has a phenomenal talent for, is that he is not necessarily interested in going for the truth, the truth of it, the factual truth, but the emotional truth. Because as we know, the emotional truth has a longer lasting effect on us. Than the, than the factual truth. The factual truth we see, we live every day, but the, when it, it hits us emotionally, that really, really hits us to the core, and that's what we feel much more than the cold, hard facts of reality. I, I that's, you know, I'm sorry, just you know, a similar thing then is taken up by um, David Russell in the movie The Fighter, right? Thing on the brothers there as well, and I don't know how emblematic that is of boxing overall. I mean. Is it quite often that there's two or three uh, sons in the family? They're all vying to be, you know, become boxers, or one comes through. Or there, there are aspects of it. I would say. I mean, uh, a, a pretty wildly disproportionate number of the deaths that boxing has had. And there's been over a thousand of them in the 20th century, either training, fighting, sparring. You know, a lot, a lot of people sanctioned. Uh, a lot of people whose deaths were sanctioned by by our acceptance of this. But a, a disproportionate number of those had their father in the corner as a trainer. So it adds a layer to it. And, and I mean, one of the things that you you touched on that I think is so interesting is we see these boxers generally, but we don't get much of the behind the stage, the, behind the curtain of who they are, of what drives them to do this. Yeah. And... When you when you talked about in your review of, of this film that outside the ring the violence is almost casual, it's matter of fact, it's nearly constant, it's the quotidian of their everyday lives, their family, children, the wife are always on the on the threat of being attacked, yeah. and it's so habitual and unpredictable and irrational. Um, it does make me think about this line of, you know, like. Thou shalt not kill, but if it's in war, we're going to give you ribbons for it. It's going to help you to become elected president. It's a great <laughs> prerequisite all over the place. It's totally venerated if it's a sanctioned kind of murder or violence. And this film blurs that line in a very troubling way, yeah. where unlike Henry Hill, where we get the, the spoils of the blue-collar aspirational life or casino um, or Wolf of Wall Street, where he's dangling all of this material excess, we do get the thrill of his masculine dominance 
over some of these adversaries. But everywhere else, he's pretty helpless to uh, a pathology that is, it's, it's almost like it would be beneficial if he was sociopathic because he is in pain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's also, you know, the, the funny thing is that um, no matter um, no matter what he does, he's always subject to something else. And Jake is subject to the mob and he's told to throw the fight. And Henry Hill is subject to the FBI and he has to go into the shadows. And Ace is subject to the mob bosses way back in Kansas City. Right. And, and uh, the, this is the brilliant thing, I think, about uh, the Wolf of Wall Street is that Scorsese then moved beyond the confines of the United States. I mean, he goes to England, he goes to, he goes to London, he goes to Geneva. So this is, this is not specific to the American uh, psyche. This is the human condition. And even uh, Jordan is, is subject to something else, you know, international law. So um, no matter how strong the character appears to be, um, uh, he, as you said, he's terribly frightened. Um, and if he feels threatened, he's going to lash out. But you're absolutely right about the, um, sorry, Bryn, again, I've lost the thread. You had a lovely line there. Sorry, to, you're gonna, this is going to be an editing, editing headache for you. No, no, not at all. Well, yeah. no, just, just that so much of the violence that happens in the ring is stylized and beautiful and colorful. But outside the ring, there's always the potential for this violence that if he was a sociopath, you would think he'd have an easier time in life. But it's really showing how human he is and, and what's necessary to be this killer is yeah. such a fragile um, yeah you know, tormented, agonized self. And, and he's always going on and on about, I'm, an a- I'm not an animal. I'm yeah. not an animal. Yeah, he, he's in protest. Yeah, and, you know, you were saying there about outside the ring, um, the, 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 the scene where he actually beats Vicky. Why'd you do it, huh? Why'd you do I it? didn't do it. Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Why did you fuck them? Do what? Did I didn't do anything. Them? I fucked all of them. What do you want me to say? What do you mean you fought? Who'd you fought? I fucked over and Tommy, Salvi, your brother over. I sucked your brother's cock. What do you want me to say? You sucked his cock. Yeah, I sucked his cock and everybody else on the fucking street, too. What do you want? You're nothing but a fat pig, selfish fool. Get talking to you. Um, it's interesting because Scorsese has repeated that scene three more times in his career. And each time he's put the camera a little bit further back. Because, you know, he... He understood, and it's easy for us as, as viewers, 40 years later, to say, why did he put the camera so close to the to the, to the violence? Um, uh, but when he beats Vicky, it, the, he's literally right up in front of the camera, and it's a brutal, brutal beating. Horrible to watch. Yeah, and as he said, much more difficult to watch because it's so matter of fact. The camera is neutral, right? And you know, Pauline Kale um, was expecting a, a condemnatory frame within the frame there. And Scorsese doesn't give it because, well, you know, that's been done by classical Hollywood narratives and classical Hollywood, and it didn't work. You know, people didn't get the point that the, the violence when, when Jimmy Cagney stuffs the grapefruit in Gene Harlow's face in The Public Enemy. And then uh, in The Big Heat, where Lee Marvin throws the boiling co- um, pot of coffee in Gloria Graham's face. These are moments where people go, wow, what a man. Do you know, look at that. And he says, well, I'm just going to take that. I'm going to take that frame away from him. I'm going to show it in this really, really brutal way. In Goodfellas, it's when Henry's asleep on the bed and he wakes up and Karen has the gun pointing right at him. 
and he tries to talk her, talk it out of her hand, and then he turns on her, throws her off on the floor, and then he points the gun back around. The camera is further away in the room. And then in Casino, uh, something similar happens when Ace beats up Ginger, and the camera is further away again, yet again. And then it's as far away as it could possibly be in Wolf of Wall Street, where they're down the other end of the hallway when George is having this massive confrontation with uh, Margot Robbie's character, and it's down in the bathroom, and uh, the hit happens much further away. And the strange thing is, with I think with cinema, is the camera can sometimes be too close for us to actually be repelled by it. The closer it can be sometimes, it's actually strangely and perversely acceptable or attractive. And the further away it is, the wider the picture, the more subconsciously it's, it's, a, it's contextualized. And you feel the hit much more emotionally, I think, in The Wolf of Wall Street, because the camera isn't closer. So it's, not, it's very, very strange. And no, I think you're, I, you know, there's a, I mean, there's a couple points there that, I, that just occur to me. Um, one is that when I watch James Gandolfini in Sopranos, yeah. what, what I was feeling, and then I looked it up to check out if I was at, right about it, is the violence in that hits me as a viewer much more than the violence that I've been conditioned to accept in so many other films. Um, and maybe it's this casual or neutral perspective of how it's presented, but there's an aspect of, of James Gandolfini, who I think had a lot of anger as a person, but because he had all these anger and, and anger issues and he had the self-awareness to recognize it, for him to then tap into it as a character required a huge lift emotionally to get somewhere really dark where I see the moments of my my father getting up to anger toward me where it's like I feel his love for me but to get over that to maintain the anger is an incredible chemical reaction yeah right in right. his nervous system yeah. and there's something about that not in the boxing scenes of this film but to see De Niro get to a place of the casual menace that he inflicts upon family and his wife and his kids um, is very frightening to watch and reminds me almost of like when I was a kid going up to the country where my father was was raised, country people, everything that's on a farm is there to lay an egg or to be slaughtered. Right. Right. <laughs> And those people are not going about it with sadism to do it. it you just have to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, there's, and there's certainly an element of that from the boxing world in the ring and around it where this is quotidian. This violence, death, blood, <laughs> uh, lives destroyed, broken. You're one punch away from being deformed or, you know, or in a wheelchair or whatever. Um, and there's something very corrosive about not just the violent violence that's inflicted, but the potential for violence yeah. being inflicted that I feel like Scorsese really captures in this film that it's it's a corrosive watch. Yeah, it is. For the yeah. entire watch, it's yeah, it uncomfortable. And I to come back to what Thomas Schoonmaker points out in the director in the running commentaries, is that he he was exposed to that sort of violence as a young kid. Uh, I, I have no idea about what uh, his parents were like, but Schoonmaker does allude to, you know, the, the table being overturned and things being thrown against the wall and, and then just simply, you know, out in the street. And so I think Scorsese has, is able to intuit 
an understanding of violence. Uh, he didn't necessarily have to sit down and, and go to college to, to, do a, to do a paper as to the, socio, um, the sociological impact of violence or what creates the violence. He just, he sees it and he's lived and he's absorbed it and he under, he's able to pop it on um, in, in cinematic form. And I think another thing that if you think about what uh, separates Goodfellas Casino and Wolf of Wall Street from Raging Bull is that there's no narration in Raging Bull. There's no voiceover, which anchors and organizes the, uh, the, the, the drama. Um, and that's why maybe, again, when Pauline Kael just said it's, it's, it's neutral, well, you know, would a voiceover have um, a benefit of the film? I don't think so, because Jake, part of Jake's tragedy was he wasn't reflective. Mm. He didn't have that ability. I mean, he does look at himself in the mirror quite a few times in the film, but there's, 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 there's literally no spiritual reflection. No. There, you know? um, and it's also just as a minor little detail, it's a funny little way that the, the church is treated or depicted in the film. You've got crucifixes everywhere. And I think <laughs> in, in the film that the marital bed in uh, for Jake and Vicky, that is actually the crucifix above their bed is actually this, the crucifix in Scorsese's parents' home. Interesting. And uh, with the exception of the, the boxing sequences uh, in the ring, the, the, the rest of the scenes were actually weren't filmed on sound stages. They were filmed in real locations. And that's what I mean about the near, near realist tradition is that Scorsese is saying, you know, I don't want to I don't want to beautify this. I don't want to prettify it. I don't want to romanticize it. And the important thing as well, is, as we pointed out there, uh, when we open up with Jake giving his monologue, he's practicing his monologue in a traditional movie, it would have said, you know, but, you know, okay, so I'm down on my luck now, but there wasn't always, always the way for me. I, you know, I used to be a champion boxer. And then they would have given us this voiceover and gone back into the past. Scorsese doesn't give us that, that bridge to, to transit. He cuts it with a punch. Right. And so it's very, very difficult for us to, to sort of to navigate that as an audience watching the first few, few times. And I think when we become accustomed to the film, and it's strange when we become accustomed to the violence in the film, we actually then begin to see it in a completely, completely different way. You know, we understand the stylization in the in the ring, and the realism, the really, really frightening, frightening realism uh, in in as you said in the domestic scenes. You know, I mean, even just don't burn the stake; it, just, it defeats its own purpose. Get it over here! Get it over here! Oh, good God! And then his you know, and his wife, she knows how he's going to react. And she falls into this trap as well. You know, um, one thing though, I, in doing a little bit of research for the movie, um, Brim, I was amazed to discover um, that they completely screwed with the timeline of the film. Mm. Chronology, because um, Vicky was born in 1930. And in, according to the movie, he meets her in 1941 and they begin courting. Right. Now, we know historically they married in 1946 when she was 16. He was within about a 24. But immediately I said to myself, why did they tell such a lie? And it just, it's just for dramatic purposes. They needed to, in, they needed to bring in uh, a, a life of, of, uh, out of the ring for him. Otherwise, we would have had the first 40, 50 minutes just boxing, 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 boxing. And it's very little boxing. I mean, in the film, I mean... I mean, I wanted to ask you, do you see this film then very directly? I mean, it it does seem like it's a confession in subject, subjective cinema, but at the same time, 
Scorsese being addicted to cocaine, his second marriage has fallen apart, he's estranged from his children, he's hospitalized with his body broken down. Did it suddenly just click for him? Wait a minute, I have a lot in common with this guy. Yeah, that, that's literally, he realized it was the, it was the struggle, it was the, the, the fight against himself. And, uh, you know, in a strange way, we're venerating Scorsese and, for, you know, we're not we're not venerating for his addiction and, and you know, potentially uh, very, very troubling behavior with um, friends and family or whatever. But we're venerating him for the, the, the road to Damascus that he had, that moment of realization. And in doing so, we're running the risk of forgetting what actually De Niro did for his friend. You know, um, now we can say that De Niro did it because he wanted to win the Oscar <laughs> or, you know, he wanted to portray this man. But De Niro was doing his own investigation as well. And the amazing thing about the film is that De Niro not only gave Scorsese the opportunity to really um, confess himself on screen, um, but De Niro discovered Joe Pesci mm. in that movie. It was, I think it was called uh, The Death Collector. Very, very seldom seen movie from the from the mid seventies, and um, Joe Pesci I think had all but given up acting, and it was not only Pesci he 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 bought in Frank Vincent, wow. he bought in well, yeah. and you know this this was uh, De Niro when he was, you know, he had just won the Oscar for The Godfather, he won in rave reviews for the Taxi Driver, and then he goes off and he's hired to do The Deer Hunter. And according to Meryl Streep, he effectively cast all the major characters in that movie. He went, he brought Michael Cimino around the theater district in New York for the summer, I think, of 1976. And he goes, there's Chris Walken. I think he'd be good. You see that guy there? His name is John Savage. I think he'd be good. And who's that lady? Yeah, Meryl Streep. Yeah, she'd be good as well. And, you know, Meryl Streep tells that story against herself. You know, she said he had the ability to, to see me. She had a tiny, tiny little role. Uh, I think it was in Uncle Vanya. And De Niro just picked her out. So while we're venerating Scorsese, absolutely, you know, let's not forget what Bobby did for his good friend Marty. That's a great. That's a great point. And what do you just the music of this film for me is one of the most absolutely indelible features of it. The Cavalier Rusticana soundtrack, the Barcole from Mas I can never pronounce his name Pietro Mascani. Yeah, Mascani. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's such an interesting choice, like where the boxing world would want to turn it upbeat, higher energy. Scorsese slows it right down to the operatic, yeah. poetic interpretation. I'm really, really glad you pointed that out because Scorsese talks about it in two ways. He says, look, we were living in the tenements in Elizabeth Street and we would hear 10 different genres of music moving up and down the stairs. You would hear a big band. You would hear Dixie. Uh, not Dixie, but you would hear a ragtime and you move out in the street and you hear someone singing an opera and you had every different type of music there. And he said, so for me, music is uh, a really, really emotive um, uh, experience. He says, Scorsese has a, a relationship with music the way he actually does with, with cinema. He's got an encyclopedic knowledge of music. And this is, I think, a, a key to the really, really phenomenally great directors. They have a phenomenal understanding of music as well because it's about timing and tempo and emotional range. And that's what they're trying to incorporate into the movies. And if you look at Spielberg, he has a phenomenal understanding of music. He will frame and he will construct his scenes, you know, his storyboard scenes before he shoots them, knowing he's going to build a musical crescendo. So John Williams will then come in with this. If you think about the way that Kubrick used classical music, he used it in an ironic sense. 
Okay, you know, um, Clockwork Orange, for example. And Scorsese is using the music in that same way. You know, mm-hmm. instead of seeing Alex Delarge with his gang of droogs uh, to the thieving magpie, he goes Cavalier Rusticana. And there's this phenomenal sense of calm and ease and beauty about it, which distances us from that savagery. But I only discovered, Bryn, that um, that decision to use the uh, Mascani's piece came very, very late in production because Scorsese had originally planned to use uh, a duet. Um, uh, um, sorry, originally planned to use a duet with Ella Fitzgerald and I think, um, oh, sorry, I've forgotten the name of the, the other, the other um, artist who's supposed to perform with her, but it was Stone Cold Dead in the Market. I killed, uh-huh. I killed Nobody But My Husband. That's the music that he wants to use over the opening credits. Now, obviously, he wasn't going to use that song over De Niro dancing in the ring by himself because Scorsese only thought of that image very, very late in production. Interesting. And I think that's a very, very important point. If any of your listeners are aspiring filmmakers, is to understand that you're, you design your opening credits after you've shot the movie. Because it's only when you look at the final cut of the film that you understand what the themes cinematically, that have, that have emerged cinematically, as opposed to the themes that we want to push when we had it in the script. So when you're looking at the totality of the movie, you go, this is what we're going to do in the opening, opening uh, credits to pave the way for the audience, to prepare, prepare them for what they're going to see. But you're right about the music. I mean, um, it is so, it, I mean, it's, it's an opera, I was going to say it's so balletic, but in actual fact, it is balletic. Yeah. You know, an opera, but the way he, he sh- his choice to shoot him in slow motion, it becomes this beautiful dance. And it's almost, the music is tragic. I don't know too much about the plot of Cavaliero Sicana, um, but it, it, it sounds, it gives an air of tragedy to it, you know, uh, without turning Jake into the cliche tragic figure. No. Um, so just a couple of points to to close out from Kale's review, just to get your your sense of response now, 40 years later. Uh, she calls Jake LaMotta a, a slob Othello. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pauline Kale, she had a knack for putting together two almost diametrically opposed or unexpected terms, you know, highbrow, high culture and uh, street culture. Right. And says that here, as in much of the movie, Scorsese's excesses verge on self-parody. You can feel the director sweating for greatness, but there's nothing under the scenes, she says. The picture seems to be saying that in order to become champ, Jake LaMotta had to be mean, obsessive, crazy. The tragedy in Scorsese's struggles with the material in both New York, New York and Raging Bull is that he is a great director, when he doesn't press so hard at it, when he doesn't suffer so much. <laughs> well, that's a really, uh, that's a really, I think that that's a very cruel and condescending thing to say. You know, you, you work too hard. You work too hard, you know. And, you know, forgive me, Pauline, but not everybody is Mozart, where the movie, music just flows out of them. Right. You know? Or not Gershwin, who literally, apparently Gershwin lost a, a briefcase full of music. He left it in a taxi. And who knows what beautiful genius was lost then, but uh, his friend or maybe his brother, um, Ira, just got, oh, my God. And he says, don't worry, I've got another couple of thousand more. <laughs> There's more to come. So I think that's a bit unfair. Um, and I just think it's downright wrong. There's so much more beneath the image. Um, and, you know, she, I think it's misinterpretation to say that, um, that Jake 
the movie is saying that Jake had to be so brutal in order to become a champ. That's not what the movie is saying at all. No. It it also seems to be like you can see Kale looking at the work of Van Gogh contemporaneously and just being, yeah, stop trying so hard. What's this suffering? Like, Get on a nice dose of medication and you'll be much more well adjusted here. But the work is just it's a try hard. But I think also, I mean, Pauline Kale, unfortunately, um, was true of many critics who had their favorites. Yeah. And she loved Robert Altman. And uh, she wasn't a fan of Kubrick. And um, she liked Spielberg in the, in the beginning for Jaws. And then she hated what he did later on. And it's almost as if the, the director has to adhere to what the critic wants them to be. And, you know, the sooner critics understand that, you know, the filmmaker is not serving them. And the, the film critic doesn't even should never serve the, the filmmaker either. The, the film critic should understand that they're a servant of the audience. They're, they're no arbiter of taste. They're no arbiter of of quality. I think the purpose, the good, the purpose of a good critic, a, crit, a critic is functioning well, is when they reveal things to the audience that they may nece- may not necessarily have noticed, and it's to help the audience then become more educated, more informed. So when they go to see a movie like Raging Bull, they're not distanced from it. They understand what Scorsese or the filmmaker is trying to do because they now have the framework when hitched within which to read it and not just simply say this is a, this is a, this is a brutal film. Right. You know, if that's the case, we would have listened to Roger Ebert and we would have said Blue Velvet was just a nasty, cheap film. Right. <laughs> rock sometimes, you know? Right. Um, let's go through the some of our categories just to have a look at this film and see how it... Um, it's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah. So we have our our Winnie Cooper category in that the Wonder Years would have been much better if it was told from her perspective. Um, is there a character in Raging Bull where this story might be even more interesting than told from Jake's perspective? Well, firstly, I want to commend you. That is a brilliant observation. <laughs> I love that show when I was late teens, early 20s watching it. And uh, I have to confess, I had a crush on Winnie because, you know, it reminded me of being a 12 year old kid. And there was a girl who lived down the street from me and I absolutely adored her. And she didn't look unlike Winnie. And even if she didn't look like her, it was just the emotional the return to that emotional moment as a 12 year old. So but you're absolutely right. If the Wonder Years, if they had told it from Winnie's point of view, because I never knew this. And you pointed out to me her brother was lost in Vietnam. First episode. And it just dropped us. And the parents broke up, break up as a result of the bereavement and the trauma. Like, what a milieu that's so much more rich than just... Yeah, it is. You know, and, you know, what's Kevin's big problem? His older brother rags on him. Right. <laughs> now, I know that we've, we all have that. I mean, I've got older brothers and they used to rag on me. But, you know, yeah, I just think you're absolutely right. And imagining the story from a different perspective is a really, really interesting idea. And I think the most obvious one, maybe it's, it's too easy, is from Vicky's point of view. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it just, even, even to the point that she's stepping into a relationship where she knows the man is already married. And immediately, you then you're sort of thinking about Rebecca, Daphne mm-hmm. Maria's book, and the previous Mrs. De Winter and the previous Mrs. Mrs. LaMotta. And then you just, if you were to tell it from that point of view, it just opens up so much more. Immediately what you have is women talking, you right. know, and um, talking to one another 
uh, in the kitchen while these two, while the two brothers down in the gym. And then immediately you've got the, the, the dichotomy between the domesticity and the caring and the nurturing for the children, the changing of the nappies and the cooking, the dinner, and getting dressed up to go out. And the rewards of what my husband does, as, as um, Karen says, you know, there's girlfriends of mine that I know that if they saw the second they saw that their boyfriend had a gun, they'd be out of there like a shot. But for me, it, I've got to be honest, it turned me on. So I would love to see why Vicky sticks with this guy. Because I mean, apparently in, in real life, uh, Vicky was a phenomenal beauty. I mean, she was a, she was a beauty queen. Yeah. Um, she had, the great thing about her was that she had a life after she divorced Jake. And so maybe if, if, you're, to, if you're to make a movie from that point of view, it would be, it would be her separating herself from her husband. That would be the, the transition for her. And you know, you're actually right. Examining a movie from a different character's perspective is is a is a fun game. That's a really fun game. Yeah, know? it's like we can keep that one. I mean, it's an ever evolving list. So as you come up with any of these categories, well, let's please insert them. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to interrupt. But you know, the Godfather told from Kay's point of view because she's marrying into the monsters. Right. This freaky <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one too. <laughs> Um, 40 years on, contemporary versus posterity, critical opinion, as you've, you've laid out, uh, this definitely, this film came into a lot of abuse, and it seems like we look back now, it's definitely in contention for the best biopic ever, and I mean, is it fair to say it's in the top 30 films ever made? Uh, yeah, I think we'd have to consult with our Cycle Sound um, colleagues, but certainly, uh, when the Sight and Sound con- had their survey amongst filmmakers, it's it's way up there. It's very very. I think it's actually in the top ten. Top ten. Yeah, because I think filmmakers can recognize, you know, what Scorsese put himself on the screen, and then that brings us into auteur cinema, you know, and you know, seeing yourself and other people, which is a really really important point about cinema and an art in general, is to recognize yourself and someone else. And it's not only the, the Buddhist idea that I recognize myself and you. It's I recognize myself in the sinner, in the flaw, in the victim, in the bully. You know, I'm making a movie about a bully and we, we have to be honest with ourselves. We would probably, we would be tempted to side with the bully because subliminally we think the bully would protect us just like 38% supporting Trump. <laughs> um, you had a, in your critique of this film, a, a beautiful observation, which was to say at any moment of the film, you're able to freeze it and see the entire thesis of the whole. Right. Right. Um, so I don't know whether it's closed up or not, but that's, it's, it, I think it's a smart ass line to be honest with you, Bryn. <laughs> no, it's a good one. It's a, it's a very good one. Cause I think it does create an emotionality that you, you can't get anywhere else. Like there's a, there's an element to it that reminds me of like reading J.D. Salinger. I'm immediately in his head. I'm immediately in his emotionality and how he feels about these characters in a way that I can't go anywhere else to get that fix. That specifically, yeah. yeah. Um, that being said, what would you characterize as the most iconic moment of the film? Okay, well, I think there's three of me to go off the top of my head. The opening, the opening credits, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who who is who's his opponent? The second one is when he um, he puts his hand on the ice. Yeah. And he looks. Then the camera comes around and pans up to him looking himself in the mirror. And you know that is a moment of near serenity, but um, it's almost um, um, it, it's not masochistic, but it's so sore. 
you know, he's come in off the, 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 the battlefield and he's purging himself again. Uh, so it's the heat of the battlefield, it's the freezing of the ice, uh, which actually turns up in, in Whiplash. The drummer, when he puts his hand into the ice and he sees the blood. There, I think the final scene when he's beating himself in the in the in the, in the prison cell. Yeah, but also, yeah. one of my favorite images is because it's complete idealization. Is when you see Vicky when she's down by the swimming pool and she leans back and she's just swishing her feet through the water. And you know yeah, and so you know, it's it's a moment of of incredible beauty, um, and. But you know that you're looking at it in slow motion through Jake's eyes. In actual fact, the, the camera angle does not correlate to Jake's physical position with the geography, geographical position within the scene. We're seeing it from a slightly different angle. And that, I'm sure that's a specific choice that Scorsese made. I mean, he's such a disciplined filmmaker that there's no way that he could get his eye line wrong. But he was making the point is that Jake is actually not looking at the real thing he's imagining. It's yeah. It's, I was gonna say it seems like it's a suspended fantasy gaze. It's yeah, uh, Jimmy Stewart looking yeah. into the flower shop in Vertigo. Yeah, yeah. And so, and one of the final images, the one that apparently that uh, struck Scorsese when he he when he went to the boxing for the first time, is the blood dripping from the rope. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's stunning, stunning stuff. It's, it's tiny. It's the little details sometimes that pick us out. I also love the scenes where. Um, after Joey has beaten up Frank Vincent's character in the nightclub at the Copa, he's got to go for a sit down with one of the the, the, the mob, the heads of the mob, and uh, Scorsese gives us close-ups of coffee cups, mm. and then he goes for a shot of a telephone with a whole of um, telephone numbers um, written off the wall and scratched out. You know, those sort of little things are just beautifully done. I don't think you can find the whole movie in that one image, I mean, no. but I think the. Um, the one of Vicky, the dripping blood, and the the one in the ring, yeah. There's two, and it's a great, it's a uh, it's a tribute, I think, to Scorsese that he has so many of those moments. Yeah, I, and I I also think the montage is the most emotive, rich, layered montage that I've ever seen. I mean, it's it's almost like Godfather Two, but just condensed right. to two right. minutes of <laughs> of where just the blending of Outside the ring, inside the ring, marriage, birth, um, death, um, with this uh, such an unexpected um, serenade with Barcole, um, just the emotionality of it just elevating this kind of dark, tormented angel of a life launching, yeah. Yeah. but you know it's doomed. I, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it is a moment of serenity, absolute bliss, and the, the decision then to use the home movies in color. Oh, you know, tell the schoolmaker tells a terrible story. She after the movies were released, she would go around to the theaters to check to see how things were, and she, she'd go up to the projection booth and she saw a projectionist cutting that sequence out of the film, and she says, "What are you doing?" He says, "Somebody made a mistake. This is a black and white movie that they put in some home movie footage." You know, and for all the artistry, it just takes a person who's completely uncultured in the language of cinema, what you're trying to do to, to ruin it. It is. And you know, here's a little, just a little anecdote. The great, the really, really strange thing about the, that wedding sequence, the home movie montage, that takes place in 1945. And cinematically, that was the same year that The Godfather opens. Mm. The reason why I mentioned that is because the, the, the color of the gowns that um, Vicky's bridesmaids wore which is sort of um, um, uh, rosy pink, is the same color that um, Connie's 
um, flower girls wore in The Godfather. Interesting. And I'm wondering, was that a traditional Italian thing or was it just a fashion thing for 45, 46? But it just, I always, when I became much more cinematically aware, I said, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's Scorsese is actually giving us a piece we can, we can correlate with The Godfather. Interesting. Um, what would be the most memorable quote for you from this film? <laughs> I'm not an animal. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. And it's the amazing thing is that um, in the same year, The Elephant Man, I am a human being. Yeah. He says the same, but you know, uh, yeah, I'm not an animal. And then bang, 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 and then hit it. And he also says, why are you so stupid? Why are you so stupid? Why are you so stupid? Oh. It's the same scene, yeah. So true. Those are the funny things. Look at you. Now look at me. Now look at you. Now look at me. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of stuff. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm not an animal. Yeah. Stupid. What, uh, what aspect of this film has proved to be the most influential to directors since? Or to cinema since? That's a really good question. It's tough to figure out. There's so much in it. You know, you can you can examine the film from so many different vantage points. The, the thing that uh, it took me a while to to really appreciate this aspect of it is the sound design. And a guy called Frank Warner who did the sound design. And three years previously, he won a Special Academy Award for his sound effects on Spielberg's movie Close Encounters. Mm. And yet, you, you come from this fantasy landscape, a fantasy soundscape in Close Encounters, and he comes in. And he went completely expressive because you have elephants and hyenas and lions and he would slow these things down for the, the fight scenes. And then apparently for the, the flashes of the photography. Oh, yeah. Gunshots. But then for me, what is the most amazing is the dialogue scenes where it's almost, I think, in mono because the sound, the dialogue seems to come in waves. You can hear it. It's not exactly clear as it should be. And you hear the sound of the streets coming in in waves. And that, I think, is a very neorealist thing, is that the real world is coming in the window, right? Um, so I think maybe the black and white, maybe, the, I don't know, the, it's really, really hard to see what the one most influential thing in the film is. You know, the editing uh, for the fight scenes. You know, the great thing about the editing for the fight scenes, it wasn't rocky. It wasn't that type of editing. And it wasn't Eisenstein either, where she, you know, Schoonmaker was built to a climax. It's almost as if, in actual fact, I know this because Scorsese said himself, it's the, it's the shower scene from Psycho. A lot of times, uh, sheer kineticism. That's uh, a brilliant parallel. I hadn't made that connection, but... Scorsese revealed that himself. He said, yeah, I storyboarded this to relate to Psycho. Wow. Well, and you don't get better than that <laughs> goddamn nighting <laughs> scene. Um so uh, last question is, if you recast this movie or had a different director, um, what would be the most interesting combination? Throw out Pesci, throw out De Niro, throw out Scorsese. Yeah, throw out Vicky, Captain Moriarty, who do you have? Uh, well, I think I'm going to be lazy here. I would suggest casting back in 1980. I would go for Jodie Foster. Ooh, because she's, we know that she can act from Taxi Driver. We know that, you know, she's worked with De Niro before. Okay, De Niro was in this movie. She's worked with Scorsese before. Okay, Scorsese isn't directing this picture. But she would be the right age 
God. Yeah. It's too late, Vicky. Um, I think, I, you know, this is completely wrong, but I'm going to be really cheap here. Let's pretend that uh, De Niro doesn't get the rights to Lamata's life. Let's pretend John Voight does. Huh. Okay. And uh, John Voight has just come off having won the Oscar for Coming, uh, coming Home. And he chooses, get ready to laugh, Franco Zaffarelli, who directed The Champ. Yeah. And I'm saying this really, really deliberately and facetiously because it lets us know how easily things can go wrong. And if you take one little brick out of your out of the house, your masterpiece is lost. You know, and it just shows the incredible discipline of everything has to be absolutely right. Um, if you take De Niro out, I mean, who would you put in? If you took Joe Joe Pesci out, it's 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 really hard because he was an unknown at the time. You know, it'd be different if, like, if we're looking at on the waterfront, you know, and uh, you know, if we put John Garfield, who I think tragically was dead at that stage, um, uh, you know, if you if you switch the roles, if you put Rod Steiger as the boxer as Terry, mm-hmm. <laughs> just mix it up a bit. But uh, it's it's a fun part of the game how to ruin a film in two steps. <laughs> well, if it's 1980. I'm going to put Hitchcock in as the director because he's filming in 79. And maybe, I mean, I know Al Pacino would be a little old, but in a way, De Niro looked too physically beautiful to be Jake LaMotta. Right. You know, he, he had to put on a prosthetic nose and, and that sort of thing. But you look at the real Jake LaMotta, he is a kind of Al Pacino. Right. Type yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, the, thing, the great the thing is, I think I said this to you um, uh, before with Million Dollar Baby, is when we when we reimagine casting, we would have to rewrite it. Yeah, we. When people say, "Oh my God, I can't believe that, you know such an actor turned down that movie," um, you know, like John Travolta turned down Forrest Gump. And he said, "Yeah, but we've got to remember it wasn't Forrest Gump when he turned it down." Yeah get it from the release point of view and we're trying to we've got to put ourselves in the imagination of the producers putting the movie together so, well and, and i think jack nicholson turned down paul newman's role in the sting and turned down pacino's role in godfather thank god yeah <laughs> the thing was you know it's chemistry i mean jack nicholson would have simply too cynical and too narcissistic for the sting newman pitched it perfectly yeah. you know he, he he got the he got the the temperature absolutely right. It wasn't the movie is a card trick and the performance has to be a card trick. Jack doesn't do a card trick. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he does other tricks, but <laughs> it's true. This was great fun. Thank you so much for the, for this conversation. Thank you. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings. It is produced by George Alarcon Swaby, myself, and Jonathan Butler, and is brought to you by Ring Magazine. Thanks for listening.